But then I think, you know, why keep doing it? Because of all the sadness and the heaviness. And I, I just believe, I believe this about Jesus, is he really left the, the comfort of heaven to come to the brothel of earth to rescue a prostitute like me. Mm. And I'm called to follow in his footsteps. And the people who need help in the world, the suffering in the world, it's not always behind our church walls, our nice white picket fences. You know, we create these natural protections for our faith and we don't mean it, you know, but we kind of turn our faith into a bunch of rules we have to follow. And if we follow those rules, we'll get accolades and our wife will make love to us at night and we'll look good in society. We'll be a good dad. Meanwhile, the, the children of the world, the innocents of the world are suffering and dying while we hang out in our nice churches, drinking our gourmet coffees. And so there is something to this call of Jesus that I, the more I have spent time in the brothels of the world and the slums of the world, I just feel like God's there and God wants us there. This is where we love the poor. We hold the hand of someone who's dying. We touch the leper. And it's this way of Jesus that calls to me. And then, of course, you fall in love with him. Before we get going, a small ad break. Bear with me. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, you beautiful humans. I'm Seth. This is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Want to get a few things out of the way. Firstly, thank you so much to both Norm and to Claude for becoming the newest members in the Patreon community. You and people like you, the other 65, 67, the number changes a little bit every day, people that support this show, I'm so very thankful for you. Now, I have also turned on advertisements for the show, and that's because I now have a few numbers to back up my fears. I ended up having to claim the show on my taxes, and I need your help. My goal for this year is to get somewhere around 1% to 1.5% of the people that consume the show to maybe help produce it. And that looks to be about 130 to 145 people. Um, That would be 1% of the audience. And so if you're able to, consider popping over there. There are multiple ways to support the show. You can see those ways in the show notes. That would be fantastic. And if you can't do that, I totally get it. 197% get it, but consider it because people like Claude and Norm and Rhonda and Jim and Matt and so many other names that I can't think off the top of my head right now, they're making this happen and I'm so very thankful. Slight trigger warning for this week's show. So I brought on Matt Parker. Matt Parker is the founder, creator, him and a few other people of the Exodus Road, which is a nonprofit organization that tries to help end sex trafficking and human trafficking on the planet. And they have some big and lofty goals. But because of the topic, we talk about rape and selling daughters into slavery and other things that maybe make you uncomfortable and maybe you do or don't want to listen with younger children. And I know I try to keep this show as sanitized as possible, but there's just not really a good way to have this conversation. This may be one that you want to go into slowly. If those things trigger you, I will say we don't really get graphic, but... The conversation pieces are there, and I can see it being conversation or something that may give you some stress. And so if that is you, either go slowly or maybe just set this one out. But if that's not you, mm, it's big. It's big. And so here we go with Matt Parker. Oh, right. 
Matt Parker, you're a lot of things. And I think one of the things that many people would agree upon is who is Matt Parker? And so I'm going to real quickly give my elevator pitch of what I know of you. And then I'm going to let you fill in the, the gaps of, okay, here's why I should know about, about you. So here's what I know. Uh, a mutual friend of ours said, you should talk to Matt. He does some amazing things. And then doing a little bit of cursory research, which I will say I hit eject on really quick because it made me very sad and depressed that the stuff that you do has to be done, uh, much like conversations about racism and police brutality and a bunch of other conversations. I, uh, yeah, I started researching for a few hours and I was like, mm, I'm mm, eject cord. We'll do this live because uh, it was heartbreaking. Uh, and then you started a nonprofit called Exodus Road. But we'll talk about the nonprofit. So who are you? What are you? Yeah, Seth, thank you. Um, it's always a little intimidating when people say, I know things about you. Um, <laughs> I know what Google <laughs> I'm knows. I'm always curious. <laughs> That's right. Curious as to what they know. So I'm a, gosh, I'm so many things. I'm a minister. I think I would say that still. I was a, a youth pastor, pastor for about a decade of my life in my twenties. I am a father, a husband. Uh, I'm an undercover investigator into human trafficking crime. I'm a leader. I love leading people. I'm a coach to other nonprofits, budding nonprofits trying to stand up and do good in the world. I'm a pilot. I love adventure. I'm an international traveler. I love to cook. I'm a great cook. I'm really a romantic at heart. I'm a four on the Enneagram, for mm. those of you who know what that means. Uh, although sometimes I try to convince myself I'm other numbers. Well, you are. Um, Isn't so that how yeah, it works? That's, <laughs> that's how it works. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's I guess, the flyby uh, of who I am. And uh, I, at the end of the day, I just want to help people. I think it's as simple as that. Google does not know about the pilotry, or I didn't dig in enough. What do you... <laughs> pilot like you're talking about like an airplane not like a boat or yeah a tesla I on mean, autopilot I, like like a legit <laughs> no i have my pilot's license i've had it since i was like 18 and i don't fly a whole lot anymore but I, i'm a single engine land certified aircraft you know pilot i can fly cessnas and huh you know planes with lawnmower engines on them pretty much <laughs> very <laughs> slow <laughs> Slow-moving aircraft. Planes with lawnmower engines. I love aviation, actually. There's a guy, and I live um, in central Virginia, right on the Blue Ridge Mountains, and there's a guy that has, it's like a, it looks like the back, you know those machines that like blow the leaves when they're going to come and seal, like asphalt? Like it's a huge white machine on wheels, and it's got a massive turboprop that basically like throws air at the bottom. It looks like that with the case taken off, almost like like an airboat. But he has yeah. a parachute on it, and it looks like it's attached to the frame of a like a like a homemade go kart. And yeah. it um, my dog is having a conniption fit here. Go away. Um, and it, it circles our neighborhood. It's like got a parachute on the back of it, and I don't even know how it flies. But yeah, when you said you know single engines, for some reason I know it's that's like what, that, you, what you mean. Except made out of aluminum, but yes, it's similar. <laughs> the kids are always like, "I want up in that." I was like, "I don't even know where that guy lives." For all I know, he lives an hour away. <laughs> you know, and uh, and he flew down there. So I'm always terrified that he'll run out of gas and and float down and crash on the interstate. But anyway, for the uninitiated, so I'm a five on the enneagram. What is a four on the enneagram? Like, what does that mean when you say that? Because I know for those that know, they're like, "Oh, I get it. I totally." And that's so, going to change their entire lens of the whole conversation. 
I just have to confess to you, Seth, I know that I'm a four because I took the test, but my <laughs> wife is the one who speaks Enneagram, uh-huh. so I, I'm not really into it, so I, you, mm. I can't answer that question. I would say my definition of a four is the perfect number because that's what I am, but that's <laughs> all I got. <laughs> that's well, Oh, I didn't laugh like that yet today. That's good. I appreciate that. So, um, so let me just be honest, and and I say this. So I don't know if you know or not. You probably haven't listened to any of the past episodes, and that's definitely not a requirement because I don't think anybody does that before they come on to any podcast, much less this one. Uh, but I spoke to David like in year one of doing this, and by the time this airs, I'm sure we'll be into year three. That was a hard conversation as well to have, as he talked about some of his experience and brokenness and and whatnot. And so I want to talk a bit about the Exodus Road, what you're doing, why you're doing it. I'd also like to, so I've listened to a handful of other interviews that you've done skating around it. And I'd like to see kind of where the church plugs into that, because I don't often like, like where your faith intersects with that, what you're doing. Um, yeah. Cause often I hear about the nonprofit status, you know, here's what we're doing and a lot of the data, but I'd also like to, to kind of drive into it because if I don't play on the words of the show very often, but if there is anything that we don't talk about at church, like we can't say this sex trafficking, except for that one month that we all put X's on our, on our hands or whatever and give right. it lip service. Nobody talks about it ever. And right. Um, right. it's, it's a problem. Nobody has. It's, it's everybody's drunk uncle at Christmas that we don't think about until Christmas. And then after dinner, right. we put it back away with the elf on the shelf. So what is the Exodus road? Kind of where are we at with that? Like, what is all of that? What are you doing? Yeah, thank you. Um, so the Exodus road is a nonprofit organization or charity registered here in the state of Colorado in the United States, but we also have, uh, foundations and organizations and shell companies we've stood up in other parts of the world where we operate. Our mission is to find and free victims of human trafficking. And that's as simple as it gets. That's what we do. We train and deploy armies of ordinary people, men and women, both of all ages. Uh, you have to be a certain age, actually. We, we don't deploy you if you're not 30 or over. And we train you to go find victims of human trafficking wherever they're sold. And they could be sold in brothels, bars, street corners, uh, mines, coal mines, gold mines, labor trafficking, sex trafficking. We conduct covert investigations. We collect evidence with our body-worn covert recording devices, audio and video. We partner with law enforcement officially through memorandums of understanding. We deliver target packages to them for a rescue operation and arrest to take place. And we've been doing that for a decade. Uh, We started in Thailand, which my wife and I were missionaries there, Mm. and stumbled across this problem. We we had no real business fighting trafficking, and I think that that is one of these big walls that a lot of people have up against social ills is this idea that, hey, it's none of my business. I'm not an expert in that problem, so I shouldn't do anything to solve it. But when we started to learn what was happening to these kids – it just disrupted and wrecked our existence because we have three kids. Mm. And if we are to love the poor, then we have to get our hands dirty. We can't love them from a distance. We have to be near them. We have to, as Jesus touched the leper, we have to touch them. Uh, We have to suffer alongside of them at times. 
And so we started to dig into that in Southeast Asia. We started to collaborate with law enforcement and we discovered that the one thing that no one was really doing was looking for kids that were being sold. Law enforcement is supposed to do it, but they're underfunded, understaffed, undertrained, highly corrupt. Most good men and women in the world aren't hanging out in the places where children are being bought and sold. Mm. It's an intentional type strategic maneuver. And so we really just came to terms after doing about a year's worth of research and collaboration with multiple nonprofits in the area that no one's looking for these kids. And so we stumbled into this. Um, and I, I would say, I think God likes it when, you know, I think he meant that. <laughs> he, I don't know that anybody would really wake up in the morning and say, I think I'd like to run a nonprofit that goes undercover in the most dangerous, darkest places in the world for the sake of a child. I don't think you wake up like that. I think God, God lures you mm. into the kingdom where he sp- strategically wants you to serve. And, and that's, that's what it feels like for me. Yeah. Ultimately, we were faced with these questions of, hey, we think there's a child being sold in this brothel. We need somebody to go verify if that's true Mm. so we can get a warrant Mm. to go rescue her. But without that information, without the warrant, as law enforcement, we can't go in. We can't verify that. And so it's like, you know, you wake up and you come face to face with that question. Am I the guy who can go undercover and be exposed to all these things as a Southern Baptist I was told to stay away from? for the sake of the kingdom of God, because God loves that girl and God's calling me to rise up on her behalf. And so that's where we started. And then it expanded to India and Latin America, the United States. We have seven global offices now with 80 full-time staff, which I didn't intend. You know, it, it, it feels so humble to me to have started something a decade ago that's grown into an effort. Today, we've rescued over 1,500 victims of trafficking. And more importantly, we've arrested over 600 traffickers and perpetrators and pedophiles. Yeah. So that's what we do. That's the Exodus Road. We have a small army of investigators, national and expatriate, that that engage in uh, the underworld, all the places where kids are bought and sold. Yeah. And uh, it is a heavy, heavy topic. You're it right. is. And so that's what we do. Can you give some s- scope to that? So um, I've actually been to Thailand. I went on a quote-unquote missions trip as a senior in high school right after college took all that money that you're supposed to use on school and instead went with my church to thailand but with the what i think about what a missions trip should be i would say it was a a jesus-y vacation i wouldn't call it a mission trip you know it wasn't but i can remember being in bangkok and really thinking it's not much different than like Times square can you give some scope for those like myself they're like yeah i don't even know what i'm looking for like when you're doing trafficking for the Exodus Road, like, is that only sex trafficking or are there other types of trafficking? Like, how many humans are we talking about? What are some demographics to that? Yeah. So we use ILO's numbers, International Labor Organization. They estimate 40.8 million, million modern-day mm. slaves exist today on our in our time and on our watch, 40.8 million. Mm. It's a difficult statistic to measure because, you know, it's not like you go down the street and hand out a survey and say, hey, are you trafficked? Are you suffering from fraud, force, or coercion? Which is the United Nations definition of human trafficking, by the way, is the use of force, fraud, or coercion for the purpose of exploitation. And there's basically two categories. There's labor trafficking and there's sex trafficking. Those are the two main 
categories that happen. So we have villagers or impoverished people groups that are tricked onto a fishing vessel with promises of big money. And they get onto that vessel and they're not allowed to see land for years and years and years. They're, they're out to sea fishing for the shrimp that we eat in Costco. Costco is supplied by quite a bit of slave fish. Or labor trafficking could, could look like children in Latin America being forced to farm cocoa plantations that makes its way into American chocolate. Uh, the coal and the gold that we farm, the iridium in your cell phone, a lot of that is farmed or mined through forced labor. You know, these are people that were promised high wages, promised opportunity. They leave their home. They sometimes get on a bus or a plane or cross a border. They arrive at the place they were promised employment only to find out they can't leave. They're enslaved. They're beaten. They're raped. They're abused. They're forced to work 15-hour days, very little sleep, no medical care, almost no money, if any money. That is a, a labor trafficking situation. And sex trafficking, honestly, it follows the same pattern. These young, beautiful girls from all around the world, America included, they're promised riches, jobs, stability. If you just get on this bus, they're recruited and then they're moved. Sometimes it's internal state trafficking, so from the state of Colorado to Nebraska, but sometimes it's across the border. Uh, the further away they get from their nuclear family, their protection mechanisms, their language, their culture, the harder it is for them to escape. And so many times I've had people say as I've given this talk, you know, well, why don't they just run away? Well, local law enforcement in corrupt towns are oftentimes involved in protecting the brothel, protecting the business for a bribe. And so girls can run away sometimes, but the cops will bring them back and then they'll be tortured. We, we just rescued a girl who was tortured mm. um, in Latin America or murdered in front of the other girls. And so those other girls are now under duress. They're terrified. Or it could be something as simple of, hey, if you run away, I'm going to go back and get your mom and kill her. I'm going to go back and get your sister. If you won't do this, then I'll get your family. And, and they do. So these are mafia syndicates. Sometimes the perpetrators are mom and pop shops is what we call them. Just small operations, and sometimes it's transnational criminal syndication, moving hundreds if not thousands of girls between multiple countries, and it's that pyramid scheme. All those dollars flow up to a kingpin mm. criminal mm. who wears a suit, lives in a mansion, never sets foot on the street. Yeah. So the Exodus Road has been instrumental in taking down multiple large criminal syndicates that are global, and then a whole lot of small mom-and-pop shops as well. But there's this weird spectrum of labor trafficking, sex trafficking. Sometimes the victims are kind of somewhat complicit, like they, they kind of knew. Maybe maybe it's not exactly as I hoped it would be, and then other times girls are like, I've never signed up for this. I don't know how to get home. Yeah. So they can be a complicated. Each case is so unique, every case. Yeah, so how many cases, I guess, does the Exodus Road do a year? Like, is there a number where you're like, yeah, we can really do about 10 well a year when you're talking about 40 million humans? Like, yeah. is there a, like, is there a, a, a place where you're like, all right, so we did, we did 36 and we feel like that's all that we could do. We really need some help. Like what is the, the data behind that? Yeah. Last year we did 80 cases mm -hmm. and recovered 250 girls and boys. That's we're kind of seeing a, about a 10 to 20% increase per year in our capacity. And so we're, we're seeing those numbers go up. And then the cost, the average global cost to rescue a child for us is a thousand dollars in India. It's $500. Thailand, it's a thousand. 
mm. or, or 2,000. Uh, Latin America, it's 500. So the average uh, comes down to 1,000. We see that number continue to decline because we're getting better. Our technology is getting better. Um, yeah. But yeah, about 80 cases a year is what we're doing right now. That's a pretty heavy lift. That's like one and a half a uh, week, right? Yeah, I think that math yeah. is about right. But yeah, yeah. goodness. Gracious. I can't imagine that. So the goal then is to is twofold. So it's to rescue some children. Is it always children or is, is there like an age limit for sex trafficking or is, or nope. is okay. No. The reason the world sees children rescued more often than adults is there's more laws mm. around child protection. So uh, we've rescued a whole lot of adults as well. Some of them aren't classified as traffic victims because they don't fit within the law. So they might be fined for something that, that was illegal, but uh, restricted movement's a very difficult thing to prove. And so a lot of times a raid will take place. And if they're minors, global standards, global law will say, hey, those, those girls were trafficked. Um, they were being sold for sexual services and they're minors. Easily that can be proven in the court of law. If you're an adult, it's a harder thing to prove. But to answer your question, Seth, yes, both adults and children. Yeah, yeah. And so the goal is rescuing a people. And then I would guess changing a governmental mindset to make it where the culture that allows that to breed and fester is gone, right? To make it where you're too afraid to get caught that maybe you don't traffic human beings. Is is that fair or is that not really inadequate? Yeah, that's fair. You know, I would say we're in the business of making trafficking a dangerous thing to do. It's really not a dangerous thing to do for criminals. Mm. It's pretty easy to get away with it right now. But what we're talking about is long-term systemic change. So it is influencing governments, law enforcement agencies. A lot of times it's not that they don't have good laws, that they don't really know how to implement those or how to identify victims of trafficking because they look like prostitutes oftentimes. You know, they're not wearing a badge that says, hey, I look like I'm having a good time, but secretly I'm dying inside because I've been exploited. These girls have to meet a quota. They're beaten if they don't meet it or they don't get fed. And so they're out front of the brothels with a smile on their face, and they look like they're having a blast until you talk to them, until you sit next to them. We do a lot of training for law enforcement. So it is systemically like making those law enforcement officers effective, but it's also communicating to the pedophile networks and the trafficking networks, look, we're coming after you. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you might want to change change professions because the weakest link for a trafficker is they have to open their doors to customers and they don't know who those people are. Yeah. Yeah. They look, you know, my team, nobody, first off, nobody knows who works for me. I have four investigation units, Alpha Bravo, Charlie Delta. No one knows who they are. They look like anybody else that might be in that brothel. Right. So traffickers don't know who they've invited into their place of business. Yeah. And that makes them incredibly vulnerable if good men and women yeah. will rise up on behalf of these kids. I have to assume that your profile is high enough now that you show up on a Google search that you can't really go in there any longer, correct? Or is there places right. that you can show up and, but probably not, right? I assume your face is recognizable enough that they're like, yeah, don't let him in. This is not going to go well. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. Yeah. So, but you've, you've done that though. You've been on the units, you've gone in and mm-hmm. you've seen women and I'm sure boys as well. I don't understand how that doesn't like literally break you. Like how you can sit there and then leave and then possibly most likely come back multiple times. Like I don't understand how to deal with that amount of laments. Like I don't comprehend it. It it doesn't make any sense to me. So 
how can you stay healthy when you're doing that or the people that are doing like i don't even know how to adequately ask the question i think but hopefully you know what i'm trying to ask yeah so i've been undercover in over 2000 brothels in i don't know how many continents all around the world looking for kids and you do you you're exposed to sexual abuse sexual violence violence there's a lot of trauma tertiary trauma and I've struggled with post-traumatic stress to a degree. But I try to encourage people that as hard as that sounds, and it is hard, I really believe that if those of us who are Christians in particular, if we say we believe in this big God who loves the poor, and if God is omnipresent, God is in that brothel every day, and he is breaking, his heart is breaking, and his heart is breaking for the girl who's being raped in front of me, but he's also, his heart's breaking for the man who's doing that to her and the trafficker who's making money on it. The brothel is the the most honest place I've ever been. Mm. No one's hiding anything. Their brokenness is on display. And I, I like to encourage people that these people are so hungry for love. And when we get to go into these environments and hold the hand of a child and engage with a trafficker and engage with a John or a buyer for a girl, I'm bringing love with me, and it is difficult to see some of the things that are taking place, but so is war. Uh, there, there's a lot of other things that are difficult to see, too. I just feel like this is my calling, mm. and my prayer at the very beginning of this was, God, protect me, protect my marriage. And to that end, my wife has been undercover with me and a lot of these establishments, not the ones where I felt like we would die, but in high amounts of exposure. She's held the hands of these children as well. And you fall in love with really every actor. I think as a human population, especially those of us in the faith community, we tend to demonize people or have that dichotomistic kingdom mindset. Like I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell. I'm right, you're wrong. But when you hang out with the poor, you know, the traffickers I've met, some of them are just amazing people. But they're poor and they're broke and they're desperate and they're trying to feed their own kids. Mm. And so they've made these moral concessions to exploit this person for money so that I can feed my kids. And it doesn't really always look like what I think we envision. We envision them to be pure evil. You know, only a pure evil person would sell that kid. And even the Johns, when I talk to these buyers from all around the world, I've met men buying small girls for sex from all around the world. When I talk to them, and I'm, I'm hanging out with them. They are the saddest, most broken people I've ever met in my life. Most of them have had failed marriages or failed relationships. They, they are broken. They are lonely. And somehow we as a church have failed those guys. We haven't loved them well. We haven't invited them to be honest about their sexuality or whatever their problems are. And I think as a church in particular, we just don't talk about sex. Yeah. You know, and we should, we should be, we should, it's like a cornerstone of human existence is sexuality. It's, it's got so much shame over it, especially in marriages. And, and Laura and I, through this process of her sending me as an undercover operative into brothels and seeing a ton of nakedness. And in one of my conditions to do this was Laura, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this work if you're not, if you're not about it, you know, you have to be, you have to send me. And when I come home and I have to unpack the things I saw 
and how I controlled the operating environment. I'm, I don't want to be punished for that. I, I'll be honest with you what took place, but I need you to do this with me. I'm not doing this without you. Mm. And guys, I'll just tell you, it has led to some very difficult conversations that has produced an incredibly strong marriage, sexual conversations in our marriage. We would never have ever had, cause we were raised Southern Baptist. You don't talk about this stuff if you're Southern <laughs> Baptist, you know? but you know, it's like, Hey babe, we've got to talk about this. And it's forced us to have this kind of honesty. And I love it. It's been so powerful for us. So there's that side of that question you asked me of how do I, but then there's this other side that I think is easier to understand. Maybe these environments are full of pretense, but it's not true. They're trying to act sexual. It's the, it's one of the, the least sexual places I've ever been as a brothel. These girls are dancing like you would imagine on a stage, but their eyes are hollow. Their expressions are sad. There is nothing in these environments that makes you feel like they want to have sex with you. And it, you look around the room and it's a room full of old fat men. And these girls are teenagers. They don't want to have sex with these men. And so it's like this facade that's so easy to penetrate and say, look, this isn't, this isn't true. And so for us, we stay in this operational mindset frame of mind. We do our very best to stay there. We always work in teams of two or more. We have high amounts of accountability. You can't work for me as an undercover operative if your significant other doesn't sign off on you working with me for that same reason is as sexual as the sex slavery is supposed to look. It's terrifying. It's incredibly sad. But then I think, you know, why keep doing it? Because of all the sadness and the heaviness. And I, I just believe... I believe this about Jesus is he really left the, the comfort of heaven to come to the brothel of earth to rescue a prostitute like me. Mm. And I'm called to follow in his footsteps and the people who need help in the world, the suffering in the world, it's not always behind our church walls, our nice white picket fences. When we create these natural protections for our faith and we don't mean it, you know, but, we kind of turn our faith into a bunch of rules we have to follow. And if we follow those rules, we'll get accolades and our wife will make love to us at night and we'll look good in society. We'll be a good dad. Meanwhile, the, the children of the world, the innocents of the world are suffering and dying while we hang out in our nice churches, drinking our gourmet coffees. And so there is something to this call of Jesus that I, the more I have spent time in the brothels of the world and the slums of the world. I just feel like God's there and God wants us there. This is where we love the poor. We hold the hand of someone who's dying. We touch the leper. And it's this way of Jesus that calls to me. And then of course you fall in love with them. Mm. These precious, innocent kids who look up at you and, and, and say really deliberate things like I need to get home and I don't know how to get home. Yeah. How do you walk away from that? Yeah. What kind of a man would I be <laughs> yeah. if I knew that and I just said, you know what? I'm just going to let you die. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think as, especially with your podcast, Seth, you know, the things we don't get to talk about at church, you can't say. I think human sexuality and healthy sexuality within marriages and within the Christian faith, man, I wish we had more leaders that were saying, hey, guys, let's talk about really enjoyable consensual sex within your marriage 
Yeah. What does that look like? And those who are suffering in the world, especially our communities, they're looking for love. And if we don't provide it to them, they're going to go looking for it in the wrong place. Oh, it's that time. I have to try to pay the bills. Be right back after this small break. We made peace when we were younger before we learned to fight. Every grain of sand is numbered in the first light. So I think the aim of the Exodus Road is pretty evident and clear. What are some of your doubts and maybe some of your fears, you know, as we come into, let's just say we're hitting the reset button for the next decade. You know, you've been at this, you said what, 11 years now. What are some maybe doubts and fears as you're, as you walk into these next 10? Well, that's a hard one. I would say that my fear is that human trafficking will fade as a trendy cause, it's gotten a lot of attention lately, which is great. You know, before human trafficking, there was probably clean water and digging wells in Africa. Before that, there was, there was another trendy cause. And with 40 million slaves in the world, I, I just would hope that it doesn't fade. And I do, I do have a fear of that. Mm. It's interesting, the motivations behind why people care about things. Um, and Facebook, I don't know that Facebook's really helped. It's kind of overwhelmed people with too much, you know? So I think that that's a fear is that the momentum we've built, not the Exodus Road so much, but, but all these organizations that, you know, human trafficking's really gotten a lot of attention that that will fade because this is the time we need it to really increase, not fade. That's a fear that I have. I think as far as doubts go, I honestly just don't have any doubts as far as what we've done. You know, one of the kind of most common questions I get uh, that maybe is close to being doubtful is the what happens to these girls once they're rescued questions, the number one question we get. Mm -hmm. And the answer is more complex than what a lot of people want, but they're processed through the Department of Social Welfare and they're placed in aftercare, either government or non-government, private. The majority of them, I would say 90% or maybe even more, end up in government shelters. Some of them are good. Some of them aren't good. And so the crux of that question is, do these girls end up back on the street and back in prostitution? Some of them do. Some of them don't. And I, and I try to explain freedom like an onion. There's layers of freedom. If a girl's been trafficked transnationally across the border and, and her passport's been taken, if we conduct a rescue operation of law enforcement, that girl gets her passport back. She has freedom of movement. And now she has some choices to make. That's a layer of freedom. She's technically free. It doesn't solve all of her issues. She has no money. She has no job now. How's she going to get home? If she's not a minor, government's not going to help her. They might deport her, but that's it. So the next layer is how do we get those girls into quality aftercare shelter? How do we get these girls to take the stand, or boys, take the stand against their trafficker so an arrest is made? I mean, the layers, there's so many layers. So at the Exodus Road, we can't solve all those layers, nor, nor should we. We are not replacing law enforcement, and we're not replacing the Department of Social Welfare. They have massive budgets and thousands of employees to care for their own citizens and people. Mm -hmm. Our job is to help them do their job, to train them, to teach them, make them better, uh, be a watchdog for corruption, follow a survivor through the process of the judicial and the aftercare placement and the repatriation. We are social workers to do that. But there are some girls that do not qualify for government assistance and depending on the case, they may be turned out back onto the street with no further support. 
So the Exodus Road, we're trying to stand up a, a, a housing for, for girls that fit that category. But there is no guarantee. A lot of these survivors don't want you to, to help them anymore. They don't want to be reminded of what's happened to yeah. them. They just want to disappear. They want to go back home. So I think that the, the doubts are just wrapped up in to what level can we really bring healing and restoration to those girls? My answer is just, well, we're going to bring as much of it as we can, but we got to trust God with some of this too. I mean, we're, we're not able to, to erase what's happened to them. They're, they're survivors of a, a treachery and a trauma they'll carry with them their whole life. Yeah. For me, the reason I can get past some of those obstacles is I believe the most important thing we could do is arrest traffickers and take down networks for what, for one girl we recover that trafficker. If we don't arrest him, he may traffic a hundred more girls, but if we arrest him, it sends this shock wave of fear into the underworld that, Hey, that corrupt cop I was paying off. I still got arrested. You know, that mechanism of protection for my criminal yeah. business didn't work. That's a powerful thing. And so I, I guess I'm sloppy answering your question. I apologize, but those are the things I'm wrestling with is just how can we be sharper in those areas? And, and hopefully we don't lose momentum in our society in particular, but globally yeah. to really fight human trafficking. That's my biggest fear is it fades yeah. into the background. For clarity, sloppy answers are entirely fine because for those listening, I don't send questions ahead of time. Matter of fact, if people ask for them, I often don't do the interview because I'm not interested in canned answers what I really want is honest ones. That's really the only qualification that I have for for a good We're conversation. Good. Um, if they ask for canned answers, or they want if they want questions so they can prepare their answers, that's right. not very interesting to me because I don't know if they actually, you know what I mean? I just don't know if they believe what they're saying. That doesn't mean that right. that's always the case. There are a lot of people that need that and that's the way they operate. So I don't want to pigeonhole everyone or overgeneralize everyone. But um, yeah, I just I just want authenticity. So what is kind of, I want to pick on the church, but it's got to be more than that. What is religion or faith's complicity in the industry of, of human trafficking? Wow. It's a great question. I mean, my first thought is by not leading well, our young men and women up through the church and into adulthood, we're not helping them navigate the waters of their own human sexuality, even really scripturally, um, you know, I think we kind of, most churches in, in, in America, we kind of stop at don't commit adultery, don't cheat on, on your wife, don't look at pornography, shame on you for being horny, you know. Um, that's just really not very helpful. It's not helpful for teenagers. It's not helpful for us as adult men and women trying to discover our own sexuality within the confines of marriage or a healthy relationship and different denominations are going to look at those things differently. So I think that that does contribute to a level of most good men and women are trying to stay away from the parts of society that need us the most because there's sexual brokenness or there's drugs and alcohol. And we in, in conservative circles, at least are being taught even at the ministry level, Hey, stay away from those places. Mm. And I like to, to point out, uh, Jesus named Peter at Caesarea Philippi. I don't know if you guys know much about this place, Caesarea Philippi. It was kind of this dirty brothel of a place. The mouth of the Jordan River is flowing out of this rock, uh, but it was a place of pagan worship, this this location where Jesus happens to bring his disciples. 
and there's little idols that are carved into the rock where they used to worship Pan or the god of the underworld. And this underground spring would flow up out of this cave. Hmm. And one of the ways that they would worship Pan was they'd have drunken orgies. They would get together and have these big orgies, and it was to you know kind of promote fertility and all these kinds of weird practices. So Jesus could have taken his disciples anywhere to have this moment, but he took them there. And just so you know, culturally, it was a place where rabbis didn't go. Jews never went to this place. It was the place the Baptists say you should not go hang out. (laughs) Yeah. And Jesus intentionally is like, nope, we're going here. And then there's this whole, who do you say that I am business? And then Peter gets his new name, which means rock on this rock. And hermeneutically, a lot of theologians are like, look, maybe the Catholic church has it a bit wrong. Maybe it's the rock isn't Peter himself. Maybe the rock is this rock right here that this spring is flowing out of this pagan place on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And I just love this image of Jesus. Isn't the guy who's built a thick walled church with gourmet coffee and that this is where my religion will be. It is outside the church walls. It is in the pagan environments. It's in the brothels of the world with the prostitutes and the broken. And we read throughout scripture, what is pure and undefiled religion to care for orphans and widows. It is this action. It is this call to come bleed red blood on the soil of the slum where the mother's dying from AIDS. This is the Bono quote, you know, (laughs) you know, where people are suffering, where people need Jesus, where people they really really need to hear this message that, you know, God's not angry with you. In fact, Jesus came to die for your sins. You know what? There's a place he's preparing for you. Come and follow me. Mm. That message means more to the impoverished of the world than it does to those who are wealthy enough to have a nice church building or a white picket fence for safety and security. And so I think from the faith perspective, I feel like the the construct of the American church, the way that I was raised through it, it was really a religion about me. Jesus died for me. These rules are about keeping me pure. Uh, The kingdom of God is about me. The, The cross was about me. And yes, it was, but but the kingdom is a lot bigger. The thing the brothel has taught me, I like to speak about the gospel in terms of the brothel and the God of the brothel. That God is omnipresent. He's there physically with those people as much as he would be anywhere else. And he loves them and he died on the cross for them and he wants he wants them to experience the freedom that comes with Christianity, with, with following Jesus, the way of Jesus. That gospel message doesn't oftentimes fit within the gospel message I hear in our American churches. Because that message, you have to take it into a place where you're exposed to things. You're, And let me just, I know this is a little all over the map, but I've had so many men come up to me and say, Matt, I could never do what you do. I could never go into a brothel. I might, I might commit adultery. I've had men say that to me mm. and I look at them. I'm like, dude, it's not like you walk in the door and instantly start having sex with somebody. If you're going to cheat on your wife, that's not, that doesn't happen to you all at once. That is this slow fade that I think casting crowns wrote a song about. It's this slow creeping 
uh, struggle in your marriage. I, I mean, if you're so horny that you can't like meet somebody else and not feel like you're cheating, then you got some real issues, but it's not because this 14 year old slave is being forced to dance in front of you. Grow up, Yeah. grow up, handle your sexuality in a better way. And don't, and I think this is where the church has failed so much. We're not encouraged as men to talk about our struggles. What small group is, has got that going on? Hey guys, I'm struggling, you know, with my wife. This has got to be confident. And there's just not a safe place. And we see this with pedophilia overseas too. Pedophiles oftentimes were abused as children um, during their formative years. And they have this sexual desire that's born out of trauma. Where can they go and express that in a safe environment in our society? There's no AA meeting for pedophiles. Yeah. And so in some, some ways, our religion has become so dichotomistic and, and demonizing. We, we like to shoot our wounded instead of really embracing them and saying, hey, you can find healing in Christ. Mm. And I've seen this on the mission field as a missionary. You know, if you make a mistake as a missionary, I've seen this firsthand. Some missions organizations crucify that guy instead of coming alongside of him and saying, you know what? Somehow we as a community have failed you and we have not made it a safe place for you to express your struggles. You're human. I'm human. Yeah. So I think that for me is where, gosh, you know, why can't the church come to Caesarea Philippi and, and, and rage against the gates of hell for the sake of a child. Should that not be, to me, that's the gospel. To me, that we are not touching enough lepers. We are not holding enough hands of the sexually abused and exploited and bringing and clothing them. You know, I think of Hosea, you know, where the church is really symbolic with this, this prostitute that Hosea marries and she, she cheats on him and runs away so many times. And he kind of chases her down and he, she's naked and she's hungry and he, he puts a ring in her nose and he clothes her again and he brings his bride home. Yeah. And God is chasing us down despite our infidelity. But meanwhile, we don't give that grace to anyone else. And we don't look at the kingdom of God as a chasing type of calling. And there's a laziness to that type of religion. And it's not a loving type of religion. But when we say, look, there are children being raped There are people being forced into slavery. They're dying. I believe it's our job to rise up in the name of Jesus and go heal them, to love them, hold their hand, do all that can be done. So that I'm getting excited a little bit, but that, no, I like it. I love that gospel. And I think that that's the gospel. I think that's what Jesus did. He showed that to us and we've tamed that, you know, and we've kind of made it something comfortable for us, but I will tell you, it's the most uncomfortable thing in the world to go into a brothel knowing it's dangerous for me. It's dangerous if I screw this up for the girls, Mm. but man, I I feel God's presence. I want to stay on God. I want you to try to wrap words around what you mean when you say God. So like, and I want to frame it maybe in, in a context that would, that would matter. So one of these girls or, or sex traffic people, they literally say, all right, Matt, so who is, what is God? Like, what is that? Who, why is that? What, how do you explain that? Like for you, what is God? Um, he's perfect love. Um, and the implementation and evidence of love, he's the opposite of shame, the opposite of slavery. He's freedom. 
for me, God is constantly saying you're enough. I like, I really do like scripture's use of father. He's a, he's a father. He's justice, but not in the angry sense. I think he's justice in that sense of peace. I think man's justice tends to be violent. God's tends to be loving. I, I like that. He, um, he makes things right. He's this sense of character. When everything is right with the world, it's because of him. But, but it really keeps for me in my mind and my heart coming back to this idea of love and what does love do? Love reduces human suffering. Love forgives. Love restores. Love rescues. Love defends you uh, when you need defense. But in a loving way, not a violent way. God is this chief character of, of taking broken things and putting them back together. And I do love the fact this question you're asking, the Jews were asked, and they had all these names for God, right? All kinds of names. Those are the names that, that come to my mind for him. So I've asked that of people of different faiths as well. And so it's, it has become it's cool. like it's, I don't know, I just, I just like that. Like it's, it, the first few times it was really weird. And then after that, <laughs> it, it's just, just been like this, like I wait and I wait an hour to ask the one question I actually want to ask. Matt, where do people go? How do they support the Exodus Road or or things maybe that are running parallel to the Exodus Road that also should be supported? Like where do you want people to 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 do like what 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 should they do? How should they do it? Yeah. That's kind of you to invite me to share that. I the, the simplest thing I think a lot of people do is go to our website, theexodusroad.com. But from that launching point, there's three things. Number one, uh, be an advocate. You know, keep the wave moving forward of awareness. What is human trafficking? We've made that as easy as it can be on our website. There's a volunteer section. You can, like, share things on Facebook. You can volunteer with us. Number two is to donate money through our search and rescue program. 100% of it goes to the frontline investigation effort of finding and freeing girls. A lot of people do like 50 bucks a month. Some people do a thousand bucks a month. It's, a, it's all your flavor. So donate financially. You can go to our website to do that. The last thing uh, that I invite people to do is consider joining Delta team. And that is our U.S.-based investigation force. Finding and freeing girls here in the United States mm-hmm. and internationally is needed. It's a big ask. Um, but for, for a, a small few listeners, they may be thinking, you know what? I can brave the darkness for the sake of a child. Um, and if that's you, I can train you to do that in a way that protects your marriage and protects your heart. But those are the three asks I have. Thanks for your time and for yeah. your ability to forgive my lack of scheduling and emailing and calendaring. There's a lot of reasons for that, no but it is what it is. So yeah, thank right. you again no for worries. coming on that so much. Yes, yeah, Seth, thank you, buddy. part in here that hit me the hardest that gave me the most pause is where Matt started saying you know a lot of these people you fall in love with all of the actors in the situation but some of these people just made the best decision that they could and that decision just ended up being an awful one I can't imagine that I have such an amazing life of privilege just because I was born where I was born and I don't understand a lot of things but I know what breaks the heart of the God that I worship. 
and human trafficking is on that list. You heard Matt preaching on it basically at the end there, that that is not what the church is called to be. And we can help be better and make things better, maybe bring shalom or what some would call the kingdom of God. We can partner in that. Ah, man. The music that you heard today is from Remedy Drive. So just a few days ago at release of this episode, they had a new album come out and I'm going to have a link to both those songs in the in the show notes, but I'm also going to have a link to a Spotify playlist that they've done. So they are like partnering as well with the Exodus Road. And so they are partnering as they have partnered as well with the Exodus Road and a little bit of everything that they do is helping to support this ministry. And what I love the most is their lyrics are haunting, but their money is where their mouth is. And I think that's what we need more of. Support all of these things, if at all possible, if it humanly possible. And more importantly, have these conversations in your faith communities. And if no one's willing to have them, that's a thing. That's a big thing that matters. You heard Matt talk about it quite a bit there. We have to have these conversations. And we need to have them yesterday. And we need to continue to have them. Because it's that openness in the conversations that's going to shed light on things like this. In a few weeks, we'll start Lent. Next week, I've got Sarah Bessie on. And then right after that, I bring back Aaron Nequist. And so I'm really excited for the coming months. I have so many, so many good things planned. And I really can't wait. Know that you're loved beyond all measure. It's indescribable. Be well. Be blessed. Majestic caravan
And I